Are you looking for ways to attract and retain private pay clients? Thryzer is a payment platform for therapists built to help clients automatically tap into their out-of-network benefits and save on therapy up front. Check out our special link, join.thryzer.com forward slash modern therapist, and use the code modern therapists to activate $2,500 in free payments with Thryzer. Therapy notes, the number one trusted EHR among mental health professionals just keeps getting better and better. With legendary customer support 24 hours a day, seven days a week, they're giving you all the tools you need to succeed, whether you're a solo clinician or a group practice. Try them free for two months using promo code MODERN today. You're listening to the Modern Therapist Survival Guide, where therapists live, breathe, and practice as human beings. To support you as a whole person and a therapist, here are your hosts, Kurt Widhelm and Katie Vernoy. Welcome back, Modern Therapists. This is the Modern Therapist Survival Guide. I'm Kurt Woodhelm with Katie Renoy, and this is the podcast for therapists about the things that we do in our practice, the ways that we are as therapists in the real life outside of our therapy practices, if those are two separate things. And I'm really excited for this interview today. This has been somebody that we've been trying to book for quite a while, a lot of back and forth, very busy schedule. But a lot of our modern therapists have long been interested in the decolonized therapy movement. We are so excited to have Dr. Jen Mullen coming and talking with us about her work, the the work of this and the importance of it. So thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure. I have followed your work for, I don't know, years. And I think, I don't know if you remember this, but we reached out at one point and we were never able to line up to, but to have you keynote at one of our conferences and just never got there. So I too am very, very excited about this interview. And so we'll get started with the question we ask everybody when they come out to see us is, who are you and what are you putting out into the world? Yeah, great question. Well, thank you for having me. And I'm glad that we finally landed together. Yeah. Um, so who am I? Um, I would say today I am definitely feeling like the CEO and boss of DT with all the paperwork I have on my desk. <laughs> um, I am trained as a Western clinical psychologist. I am a daughter, a sister, a cat mom, a partner, I would say a scholar and an activist and um, an ancestral wound worker. I am an author. Yeah. <laughs> right. I'm an author too. What I do in this world and what I have been doing is I, I as I said, I'm trained as I, I, I purposely like to say Western clinical psychologist <laughs> um, because that's how I was trained, even though I was in a predominantly Buddhist slash spiritual doctoral program. I will also say that I practiced direct service uh, in residentials. And so I did that work for over 20 years. Again, a university counseling center, residentials, hospitals, prisons, you name it, um, partial care outpatient units. And then I would say around the end of 2020, I left my university position because decolonizing therapy, this work was starting to grow and grow and grow. And I wanted to pro provide more time and energy to it and take a risk because I wasn't doing well following directions. <laughs> and, <laughs> you know, and I was deeply, deeply um, soul sad, burned out, physically sick. You know, and I'm still repairing from that with adrenal fatigue. 
I just felt like there had to be another way. And I started to see that the world was starting to catch on to what I was putting down. My work in decolonizing therapy lands at the intersections of the psychological or mental health, the political, the ancestral, and community collective. For people who aren't already familiar with your work, let's start at the basics. What is decolonized therapy? Yeah, um, decolonizing therapy is a movement, right? It's not something that we can do and learn in a course, learn in a semester. Um, It isn't something that we just pick up, get some credits for, and then provide services for. It is a whole shift in mind. It's a shift in how we view the therapeutic container. It's a view in how it's a shift in how we view mental health, meaning that we're looking at how there's not enough access, right? And how that accessibility or lack of accessibility creates trauma, creates inflammation in the body, which leads, you know, vice versa, they feed each other, which leads to earlier death, particularly in people of the global majority or people who are at or below poverty level. Um, or living with any kind of chronic pain or disability. Um, So decolonizing therapy is saying, hey, yes, therapy or psychotherapies are important. So much so important that the way that we're currently doing it, we're generalizing, right? But, But the way that we're currently doing it doesn't work for everybody, right? And especially it doesn't work for those, again, that are probably the most underserved, and at most need, whether we're talking about students or first-generation college students, whether we're talking about queer-identified folks, whether we're talking about poor folks, right, disabled folks, um, usually those are the individuals that are getting interns, not that interns aren't great, <laughs> they don't stay for very long, right, and they're dropping into communities without always knowing them, or they're receiving kind of subpar service, and this model of maybe once a week, hypothetically, for 45 minutes to an hour, <laughs> A, doesn't always serve the therapist, but it also doesn't serve people for how mental health is um, expanding it, like a virus, right? Like the way that people's poor mental health is, is just increasing in vast amounts. Um, I don't think it's serving either way. And so decolonizing therapy, again, is a shift in how we view this. It's a shift in like, hey, what else is possible? This is so crucial, we need this work. And how do we as providers stay alive and thrive while doing this? And how do we ensure that people are getting the kind of services and support they need to deal with an expanding, changing, and more violating world? So I frequently will tell people part of this is like, you're not a problem. You're having very normalized expressions <laughs> of, you know, blank, 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 like late stage capitalism, expressions of not having enough access, expressions of having to work three jobs and take care of family and kids and grieve, expressions of dealing with violence that we're seeing everywhere across the globe, like climate crisis, like how you're feeling is is probably a protective mechanism, right? And so how do we help you with this? And how do we bring your culture into this? How do we bring your identity into this? And how do we keep you safe and connected and plugged into community? Looking at some of your work over the years, it seems like this is really pushing back against diagnosis or or kind of 
situating the problem within the individual. It's also saying that there's other mechanisms for healing beyond individual talk therapy. And so can you talk about kind of other modes of healing and and how to address the actual problems, uh, the circumstances, the environment, those types of things? as a therapist, because it feels like when we're set up as a therapist, we're, we're oftentimes set up with this one-on-one situation. What can we do? Yeah, great question. I would say that one of the first things we can do as therapists is be willing to acknowledge, sometimes it looks like a list. <laughs> sometimes it's talking with other therapists. Sometimes it's support groups. Sometimes it's their own therapy, their own healing work. Is make a list of the areas in which we're feeling we could use more education, right? Start really taking stock and inventory of the ways that a, what we're doing maybe is not sustainable anymore um, or what we're doing is not sustainable to us and maybe not sustainable for others. So this work is really holding us accountable lovingly (laughs) for all the ways in which, you know, we're trying to put like a, a, kind of band-aid on a gaping wound that a person is coming in with, right? And so we have polyvagal theory, we have CBT, we have psychodynamic theories, we can keep going on um, internal family systems, parts work. All of this can be great. All of this can be utilized. But if we do not have a, a kind of social political frame, if we don't have a cultural frame, right? And um, if we don't, have an understanding that people's very identities are political, even when we don't want them to be. I don't want a political identity, but I have one. Sure. <laughs> right. So if, if therapists are not understanding that people are coming in with identities that already are politicized, and I'll speak to that in just a second, then I believe A, we do a disservice to the therapeutic alliance, to that, to that, that container, but also the person is constantly holding something that they probably need to put down. Right. Which is like, can I talk about this? You know, where does this come in? Do they understand this part of me? I don't want to offend them if they're a different race than me, or even if they're the same race, maybe they don't understand because of class or they don't understand because of such and such. So one of the first things I believe we can do is re-educate ourselves. And that involves also some unlearning that involves being willing to say, I don't know. And I don't know about you, but in my program, I wasn't really allowed. I was trained. I've been socialized. I talk about myself all the time in this. <laughs> I'm still <laughs> unlearning. I was trained uh, to know, to have answers. And if I didn't know the answers, I better go figure them out and learn them and not come into rounds or supervision acting like I didn't know. I better couch this in a way where I'm coming up with solutions constantly. Um, I better not bring myself into the room much. I had better stick to what my theoretical orientation is, right? I'm, I'm air quotes here, right? There, too. Yeah. Um, I had better, there was all these sort of rules and regulations. And so other things we can do is start questioning these things, right? Does this still work? Does it work for me? Does it work for who I'm engaging with? Does it work based on their historical material that they're coming in with? So part of decolonizing therapy is looking at historical trauma as a core attachment wound, right? Looking at colonization as a core attachment wound, right? That it didn't just start, it, it's part of it, but it didn't start just with our childhood. 
it started for many of us with perhaps being separated from our families or being taken away or being forced to migrate or institutions of genocide, slavery, war, right? So many, many of us have histories of being impacted by colonization. Um, and so what therapists can start to do is, A, look at their own histories of this, right? Do I? Have my people been harmed? Have my people harmed, right? And, and in, in, a, in a way that we honors defensiveness, because that's normal when stuff is coming up, right? We know this as therapists, <laughs> We know this as therapists, right? So honor the defensiveness and honor that we don't know everything, but starting with ourselves, not separating ourselves from this therapeutic container. Um, Another thing that I think we can do is investigate or learn more about generational trauma, intergenerational trauma transmission, if we don't already know. Understand that there's direct and indirect direct methods in which it's transmitted. Right. Uh, and again, we don't have to know what biologists know. And I know epigenetics is constantly changing, but role modeling plays a role. Right. Uh, somatic work. There's all these ways that information is transmitted from one to another. Another thing that therapists can do is um, get connected. Right. Join a community organization, create a consultation or support group for other therapists that you know or don't know that are working across different lines, boundaries, identities, cultures, right? Learn from each other, check in, um, take time to bring up quote unquote cases, right? Rethink diagnosis and the ways that many of us feel bound to it, depending on how we charge or fee for service. And that's real. We should get paid for what we do because that's how we survive. No one is saying don't get paid for it. Um, But also look at all the constraints around that, right? And and also noticing it. So it's, it's it's an invitation to get curious over and over again. And it's an invitation to say, as much as I want to stick my head in the sand, Um, and do what I do and do it well, and just keep doing what I do. The invitation is to realize that part of the issue can stem with us because we've been trained in these methods, right? And if we don't lovingly get curious about how we've been trained, there is no room for possibility of change. Thryzer is a payment platform designed for out-of-network therapy. As a therapist, you would use Thryzer to charge clients for sessions and collect your full rate up front. From the client's perspective, Thryzer links to their health plan, so insurance claims are automatically submitted for them upon every charge. From there, Thryzer manages the claims end-to-end so that your clients don't have to worry about manually submitting super bills or getting on calls with insurance. The best part? Thryzer allows clients to only pay their co-insurance portion for sessions, while Thryzer covers the rest of your fee and waits for reimbursement on their behalf. They also offer you an instant benefits calculator for free, allowing you to provide upfront transparency to prospective clients on their out-of-network coverage. Therapists only pay a standard 3% credit card processing fee per session with no additional fees. Visit join.thryzer.com forward slash modern therapist to get started and use our promo code modern therapists to receive $2,500 in waived fees for your sessions. One of the questions that we ask is kind of a, a learning thing, and this is a self-reflection and a self-growth kind of thing for us as well. But 
what do you see therapists getting wrong as they're trying to do this? Not in a shaming way, but as a like, all right, what are the things that we should be aware of? Like, all right, if we're going out, we're trying to politicize our practices, we're trying to do this decolonization work. Where do you see like, oh, not not quite like that? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. How about I start with myself? Because I find that that, what's the word, kind of brings down the armor a little bit because I understand that what I'm saying is it, it brings up our hackles a little bit, right? Is that the word hackles? Well, like, it's it also it super down. congruent with what you were just talking about. Yeah, like we, We've yeah. got to model this too. So yeah, yeah. And so one of the first things I can think of, oh my goodness, right? Or ethics. I know who, right? <laughs> yes, <laughs> ethics board. Maybe we all, you know, maybe we all bow down. And um, let me tell you, there was so much harm sometimes question that I ask therapists when I'm, when I'm doing uh, consulting or any workshops or anything. One of the first questions is who are you ethical to? Right. And I had to start asking myself that question. Am I more in alignment and I'm, am I engaging more with what the ethics boards want in my state or in my, you know, the country or am I more ethical to the people that I'm serving? Right. Cause I don't think those are always, in the same breath, in the same line, in the same lineage, right? Um, so a lot of times I was asked to diagnose someone in certain ways, right? In order to get paid or in order for the family to have more services. Then what would happen is that that diagnosis would file, follow a child. So for example, behavioral diagnosis, like conduct disorder, intermittent explosive disorder, right? Uh the thought is that they're so behavioral and normally we're seeing and statistically we're seeing black and brown poor children often highly diagnosed with these very behavioral diagnoses. And we would be told, you know, be careful with conduct disorder um, because if you're diagnosing them with this, we know that they're going to become antisocial. Right. We know that they're going to be at higher incidence rate to get antisocial. We also know for black and brown youth in particular, particularly male identified, but in general, that they that's also more highly correlated to the school to prison pipeline. Right. And to kind of having that diagnosis follow them, whether it's in IEP meetings and depending on where you are in the world or the country, like the meetings that children have when they're quote unquote misbehaving, right? With the school sure. therapist or what have you. So um, I would find that allowing myself, even though I knew on a gut level that, that it was inappropriate and that these were definitely trauma that we were seeing in this youth, but giving them these behavioral diagnoses and letting myself fall, kind of like not hold the boundary with my supervisors that no, I'm not giving them this diagnosis or this isn't going to work. And they would say, especially in hospital settings, oh, we need to this many children in order to get our services or big nonprofits, right? So it's sometimes allowing ourselves to do what is against our better judgment, even though we do see these symptoms, right? Yeah, yeah, these, these expressions are happening in the youth. However, these are all trauma. These, this is all trauma. This falls under trauma. Another thing is um, strength and needs assessments, right? Is the person involved? If you're doing a strength and needs assessment, again, depending if you're working community mental health, I had to do these all the time as a psychologist, as a therapist, right? Or I had to do an intake triage and I had 15 minutes with a person and then I had to decide their fate, so to speak, yeah. right? Within 45 minutes. And so an invitation is to look at the ways in which A, 
Are they being involved in their strengths and needs assessment? Are we are we looking at community as strength? Are we, you know, are we just looking at the psychological in a silo or the, you know, the emotional in a silo? Are we deciding whether or not someone goes home or stays? Are we separating children from families? These are all things that I've done. I remember working in a prison and deciding as a first year student, whether or not someone that has been locked up for a certain amount of time got to stay or go. I didn't feel that that's something that I should have been in charge of, (laughs) right? I didn't have an analysis. No one ever asked me if I understood why are people poor? No one ever asked me if I understood what was my definition of racism, right? And how that's playing out in prison systems, right? None of this was ever assessed for Dr. Jen, but I got to make all these decisions about people, right? Without ever quote unquote assessing air quotes here, <laughs> yeah. whether or not I was equipped to make these decisions and whether I had an analysis, right? Whether or not I understood poverty, whether or not I understood, whether or not I understood um, that pronouns are political, right? That whether or not someone has clean running water is political, whether they have to work three jobs and pick up their kids after session is all political, Right. And so when I say something is political, we're not talking about Democrat and Republican. (laughs) Right. But we're talking about rather access. Who has it? Who's included and who's not? So um, these are things I see people doing. And within the therapeutic relationship, things that I've done and and continue to do. And those were all things that I've done. (laughs) And things that I did in a therapeutic container was also try to dilute myself, project back when someone asked me a direct question that was actually super appropriate, you know, here they are telling me all their traumatic material, trusting me to do EMDR work with them, trusting me to hold this information, although it could be life or death for them. If their partner, if their community finds out for some people, and they would ask me a very simple non-threatening question And in the beginning of my work, I thought it was appropriate to constantly put it back on them, that they were just projecting, that they were evading, that they were avoiding, right? That they didn't want to work on their Mm -hmm. stuff, Um, that if they were coming late or 15 minutes late, I would reschedule it because that's what I was taught to do, even though maybe they were taking a bus or they had to pick up a child or or they were just crying on their way here and they couldn't get out the door and they were dealing with major anxiety, right? So these are all things that I did. Um, that I have come to forgive myself for, but I felt shame because I didn't want to really do them or it felt off or didn't feel right or didn't feel in alignment or answering, yeah, these are my astrological signs. Why? Maybe that would have brought us a little bit closer, right? <laughs> right. Um, is it harming me to share that? Right. Like I'm not taking 20 minutes away. I'm maybe five minutes allowing some rapport to be established and maybe then figuring out why this is so important for the person. Yeah, and I'm going to stop talking, but I, I want to give a really beautiful example of also when I started doing the work on myself in this way, started looking at my own history and started looking at the places and spaces where I was a bit more defensive, right? And where I was so steeped in like very Eurocentric traditional therapy, talk therapy in particular. Um, I had a new individual come in at the university. We had a 90-something student wait list and only three therapists, <laughs> Oh my God. Um, and I was doing tons of, yeah, I was doing tons of group work because the students needed it and tons of holding space for like rage groups, even though we weren't calling it that. 
right? I was uh, co-facilitating the LGBT support group, teaching two classes, running a peer education group, uh, doing grants for that, and seeing couples and individuals and handling crisis. One job, right? right. Working oh. close to 50, 60 Ooh. hours at a university counseling center. And I started realizing that not only was it unattainable, that I was starting to not enjoy what I did, right? And I could barely pay my massive student loan bills. Not that I can now, but <laughs> right. Um, I was really sick a lot every Friday doing acupuncture therapy, this, that, just to pull myself together, realizing I was not alone. And that predominantly a lot of us um, that were having a little bit more of a social justice lens, if you want to call it that, understood that we were also being deeply exploited, maybe not by a boss, by systems and structures and where this was no longer attainable. And this young person comes in and they're like, so I know I'm on a wait list. I'm changing some information here, right? But generally this is, um, I know I'm on a wait list. I know you're in high demand. And I'm like, am I? I didn't know this. I mean, <laughs> I didn't know. I didn't, I had no idea. But I think I started becoming more real and bringing in some of what I did um, externally into this work. And I think that became quote unquote demand, right? The authenticity that I brought in. Uh, but I have some questions because I don't know if we're in alignment. And I was like, whoa. <laughs> Yeah. And I really, you know, there's old me that was like, excuse you. What? What is this about? Is this person artistic, <laughs> right? Old, you know, talk there. Jen was like, huh. but as I really sat with this, I thought, no, this is a educated young person whose hands are shaking a bit, who's nervous, but is actually asking for what they need because what they're sharing is so specific and can be pathologized so deeply, you know, and they proceeded to say, what is your take on this? What is your take on that? What's your take on da, 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 right? Like literally 20 minutes. Um, and I answered really honestly. And I would ask back, how is this relevant for you? Or, you know, some version of that. And they would answer back. And we were in dialogue, right? And they were like, I'd like to know your rising, your sun sign, and your moon sign. I was like, okay, how's this relevant? That's a lot of information. That's personal information for me. You know, and there's times I'm like, I'm not comfortable answering this. They said, no problem. Thank you for saying that. We continue to have a dialogue of honesty and I'm treating them as a whole person. They're treating me as a whole person. And then finally, and I think here is where this was most important to them. What is your take on people that hear voices, right? Or that hear or see things? And I said, well, I don't find an issue with it. I actually find that there could be some spiritual connections that that person is, or, you know, ancestral connections. But my biggest concerns are whether or not the voices are telling them to harm themselves or anyone else. Right? That's my biggest concern. And if we're Gucci there, right, we're good there, then then uh, I, don't, I don't see a problem as long as it's not impacting the person's job, health, relationships, dot, 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 dot. And they were crying. And they were like, thank you so much. You don't know how many therapists I met with that, you know, wouldn't even say I'm not comfortable answering this. Um, thank you for that honest reflection at the end. And my grandmother talks to me all the time. And sometimes I want her to stop talking. And sometimes I want her to tell me. And she, I never want to harm others. And if I want to harm myself, that's because of what I'm going through in my life. And that's part of why I'm here. And I know that not every client can have that dialogue, but damn, was that amazing, right? And she wasn't the only one. There were so many other 
young adults coming in, not exactly quite so clear and articulate, but with very similar things like, hey, starting to talk about hip hop for 20 minutes right? or, or country music, which I'm not into, but I was like, okay, I'm willing to learn. They're like, how here's how this lyrics associates with what I'm feeling. And when I stopped seeing things as like avoiding or manipulative, when I stopped over projecting it or kind of taking some of psychodynamic theory out of context, right? <laughs> I was able to bring a whole level of enjoyment and self-care to myself and the other. Sorry if that was a little long, but I wanted to be as specific as possible. Not only does Therapy Notes combine billing, scheduling, notes, secure messaging, group telehealth, and more into one streamlined platform, they're also always adding new features and forms to their library. So no matter your specialty, Therapy Notes has you covered. Learn more at therapynotes.com and use promo code MODERN for two months free. When you're when you're talking about this, it becomes very clear that some of this work is becoming very clear on who you are, how you fit into the world, what role you play, and and how that all fits into the intersection, the interaction between you and your client and all the things, right? And I think that's really hard early on. I think a lot of times we stick with these very rigid structures because we're just learning or because we're in this space of trying to protect ourselves when we don't know what to do. And to that end, I think you you talked about these rage groups. And I, I feel like we get really scared of whether it's voices or rage or or big things and oftentimes either just don't work with it or work with it really bad, really badly. And so to me, and I know that one of your titles is also the rage doctor. How do you recommend whether it's newer clinicians or clinicians that haven't fully stepped into this being able to sit with such big things like rage, like voices, like the, these things that we're not necessarily trained on things that feel very overwhelming, require a lot of us. How do you, how do you recommend we do that? Yeah. Um, I, if I, I want to speak to that and um, at the same time, the comment, cause it, what you mentioned, yes, um, if I can, um, sure, yeah. um, like not doing it well because we're like new to things. And I think that is so true. And part of the decolonizing therapy work is to hold our training institutions accountable for subpar half-ass education sometimes, <laughs> yeah. right? Um, yeah, that's part of this is, is accountability and the accountability towards ourselves that we also get comfortable and sometimes sometimes stuck or and sometimes thinking that the norm, because this is a norm, this makes it right. When if our clients are suffering from how we're engaging or they continue to say they're not getting enough, or they're still in crisis the way that so many of us are seeing across our practices across the globe, like not just you and I, right? But across the globe, we're seeing a different intervention and need for emotional and mental health. And this massive movement towards like looking at historical trauma, right? And so, yeah, I just wanted to say that, that that is why I think that my work around rage is interesting people more uh, because yeah, we just don't deal with it. And, and again, I'm going to go back to it. We don't, many of us don't deal with it in, within ourselves. And we certainly then cannot deal with it <laughs> when others are talking about it, even if they're not saying I'm enraged, 
we might see it in their agitation and their pressure to talk. We might. So if we're not looking at how we pathologize, right, um, any big emotion, again, all part of decolonizing, if we're not looking at how we pathologize big ass emotion, then we won't understand rage, right? Because, or grief that is big and messy and pounding of chest, or I can't get out of bed, or even I dare say dramatic, right? <laughs> right? Where it's calling and drawing in everybody. And it's like, feels a little um, excessive to us, right? As clinicians, when we start picking that that thread, that, that energy up. Um, so I would dare say that the first thing is understanding what rage is and what it isn't, right? Um, it isn't, it, it doesn't give anyone permission to harm someone else. It doesn't give anyone permission to you know, just be completely and utterly violent, right? And it doesn't give us permission either as a society to write off people who are learning to do better. Because I think all of us has harmed somebody in our lives, even intentional or not. could be our best friend. It could be our partner, right? It could be an animal. (laughs) Even if it's not on purpose, there's a lot of us that have harmed and continue to harm. We just may see our harm on a lessened level, but who are we to judge, right? That level of impact to someone else. It's about impact, not intent, right? And so with rage, I like to remind people that it's a normal human emotion and rather more than an emotion, it is a nervous system protective response, right? It is part of fight, flight, freeze, you know, it is part and even fawning, (laughs) you know, and I often like to remind people um, how I define rage or especially sacred rage It's the love child of shame, of trauma, including historical ancestral trauma, and grief that's suffocated or disenfranchised, right? So grief, shame, trauma is a cocktail for rage. I firmly believe that grief is always there. Some of us can access our grief states easier, although that's not the right word for it. You know, it's just in our constitution or our personality or how we cope. And some of us can go more to a rage state with more ease. And that might look like irritability, agitation, uh, picking with people, being more prone to speak up for things that we don't agree with. Right. Um, And these are protective responses. Right. Rage is there to let us know that a boundary has been crossed. That doesn't mean that how we say it is always ideal. (laughs) That doesn't mean how we do it is always ideal. But it does mean that something in us is saying, whoa, hard stop, time out. This is not effing okay. And your body, mind, and or spirit, I don't know, (laughs) is trying to find a way to let us know that something cannot continue, that something is not safe. Now, again, we know as therapists, right, that safe could look physical. It could mean emotional. It could mean something that we're not consciously aware of, right? It could be a color that activates us, that reminds us of a color from when we were abused as a child and working with children and adolescents for many years. I saw that all the time, that their rage state would be activated to look like an explosion, right? A rage explosion off of a smell, off of a song, off of a scent. And we know that the more highly traumatized someone is, the more unconscious that symptom or expression or response is, right? The more primal, the more visceral it is. And so I believe that 
one, you know, rage and grief work. It's a whole chapter of the book because I believe they're like a rage grief axis. Like they kind of all are both already always there. And when I work with someone who is deeply, deeply sad or in despair or what we call depression, I kind of want them to get agitated, right? They start coming out of that cave, right? When they're, "Ah, ah, I don't know, I'm so annoyed. And I'm like, wonderful. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Right. Like bring it out. (laughs) You do have a book coming out. Can you tell us a little bit more about that? Yeah. Um, it's been three years in the coming, man. Like I, I, I'm just like, please be emancipated already. Come out. Let me just hear what everyone thinks already. You know, it's November 7th. It's it's nothing big. It's my life's work. <laughs> right. Seriously, like I was, it brought up so much out of me. Um, and this is what I wish I had when I was a young therapist. Um, I start out saying my dear fellow colonized therapist, because, you know, it's a letter to all of us. It's a love letter and it's a call to action that we need to do it differently, that the way this world is and the level of death and the level of violence, um, that it is our job to now no more be like good people, good boys and girls, good, you know, (laughs) individuals and just stay silent and stay in our one-to-ones but it's a call to action for us to say what else is possible. Right. And so, yeah, it's in three parts and it's, you know, the roots, the trunk and the leaves, much like a tree and the roots goes, gets into the history. I talk about everything from like diagnostic enslavement to the history of diagnosis, to histories of psychology and um, therapies and diagnoses that have been harmful from homophobia to drapedomania and on um, we talk about what on earth colonization has to do with mental health. I spent a lot of time correlating it and connecting it for people. Um, and then the second part talks about generational trauma, historical trauma, um, indigenous medicines, right? And things that have been co-opted by mental health and not acknowledged down to rage and grief. And then the last part is sort of like the action. Like, what do we do? Where do we start? And right off the bat, we're talking about energetic boundaries, which I don't think is usually talked about in a lot of our programs. And for some of us, it's not important. And for some of us who are neurodivergent, highly sensitive, like myself, having it so much earlier would have saved me so much pain, mentally, emotionally, physically. Um, And then I talk about politicizing your practice. And that's what we can do because we can't really like decolonize a system of therapy, kind of tongue in cheek, but we can start looking at how to make what we are doing more accessible, healthier for us. We can start looking at the ways that we can involve peer support, community support. We can involve other individuals that know things that our clients need that we don't know. (laughs) And it's okay to not know, you know? Um, And I'm always constantly providing affirmations in the book. There's discussion questions. There's some case examples. Um, So my hope and a glossary. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> <laughs> so yeah as well as like medicine uh, my my dear friend dr jackie wilkins um is an herbalist and a naturopath and she kind of talks about some herbs and things um that are just suggestions to help with rage and grief you know as well so there's it's sort of like a revolution in i would say mental health is what i would say it can be called or that's my hope and my hope is those that are feeling um, any resistance around it to get curious, to open up, 
to look at what we don't know and look at what where the world is going. Um, you can pick up the book anywhere you can pick up books. <laughs> um, and the more that folks decide to pre-order, even if it's the day before, right? Um, it allows for people to know that you want to hear from this. Um, and especially from authors of color, you know, uh, because there's so much there. I'm I'm going to go pre-order it right now. This is amazing. Oh, that book sounds so interesting. Thank you so much. I appreciate it. And where can people follow you, find more about you? Um, Instagram at Decolonizing Therapy or at our website, um, Decolonizing Therapy or Dr. Jennifer Mullen. They both go to the same place. We also um, try to provide really equitable ranges of low cost um, different types of courses and classes that, again, that I wish I had. And that could be for therapists or people that receive or interested in mental health. Everything from sacred rage, sacred boundaries, sacred grief, learning to work with this, understand this, five rage disguises um, that I learned from my teacher, Ruth King, who I think is like the queen of talking about rage and their book, Healing Rage. Um, down to these energetic series that we've been doing, energetics of exhaustion, energetics of the parent wound is coming up. So I invite people to engage with it, you know, and engage with understanding that we are talking about a movement, not about a checklist of courses. What else can I tell you? You can also find me on Twitter or Facebook, again, all around decolonizing therapy. <laughs> yeah. Thank you we so will- much include links to that in our show notes you can find those over at mtsgpodcast.com and follow us on our social media join our facebook group the modern therapist group to continue this discussion and we are so thankful for having you here today and until next time i'm kurt Woodhelm with katie vernoy and dr jennifer mullen remember to check out thryzer they are passionate about making out-of-network therapy work for everyone Clients save upfront on therapy while therapists earn their full rate. Get started in minutes on join.thrizer.com forward slash modern therapist and use the promo code modern therapists and receive $2,500 in waived fees for your sessions. Thanks so much to our partner, Therapy Notes, the highest rated practice management solution for behavioral health. Don't forget, using promo code modern gets you two free months. Thank you for listening to the Modern Therapist Survival Guide. Learn more about who we are and what we do at mtsgpodcast.com. You can also join us on Facebook and Twitter. And please don't forget to subscribe so you don't miss any of our episodes.